Welcome to CTN, CIO Talk Network, with your host, Sanjo Gall. All comments, views, and opinions expressed on this show are strictly those of the host, guests, and callers. Now, here's Sanjo Gall. Hello and uh, welcome to CTN. To learn more about the show, please visit CIOTalkNetwork.com. And today's topic, how are city and county governments minimizing risk to build trust? What are we talking here? So, you know, of course, security breaches are increasing quite a few, both in frequency and severity. And we are finding a lot of cases popping up on a weekly, sometimes daily basis. Let's think about the kind of environment we are in. We have third-party relationships. We have cloud services. We have contractors. We have outsourcing providers. And they all could be increasing our overall attack services surface and as well as the vulnerabilities. So, You look at city and county governments, the stakes are high, the citizens' safety and the overall environment that they have to make sure that it is risk-proof or if nothing else, the risk minimization is ensured. We have to have the right risk management approaches. We have to be able to take care of citizens by first establishing a culture of trust and transparency not only with the citizens, but in fact, more so among the different agencies that work together to make that life happen for the citizens. And alongside the trust and transparency, that relationship where we would go to bat for each other, but all all together working towards that common agenda that is to serve the citizens. So how much of that is truly happening? What are the issues and what we can do better? So to discuss that, we have Brian Gardner, who is the Chief Information Security Officer with the City of Dallas. Hey, Brian, how are you? Hey, good afternoon. Good afternoon to you. And we also have Christopher Pritchett, who is the Associate Vice Chancellor, Enterprise Infrastructure and Chief Technology Officer for University of North Texas System. Hey, Christopher, how's life? Hello. It is fantastic. I love your answer. So, okay, folks, so now let's jump in. So, Brian, let's start with you. If you were to take today's environment, people had been talking about the security and risk, which is also morphing. So if you had to almost inventory the top security and business risks that organizations are facing now, and maybe give a quick comparison of how they have morphed from what you saw a couple of years ago. Oh, thanks for the question. Um, that's kind of a, that's a tough one. So I would say, let's just start with what we see today. Today, um, really what we're seeing from a risk perspective, especially in government, is um, a lot of technological debt, right? You, you have legacy systems that are built on older technology. And the, the bad side of that is that the, the bad actors, um, they're well-funded. They have they have quality people working for them, and they and they got good tools to uh, to uh, attack your surface. How is that different than it used to be? Um, I would say it was a little uh, less organized on the bad actor side. It was um, a little more. You always thought of a hacker as the guy in the basement plugging away at his computer. It's not that way anymore. It's kind of a big business 
for the bad guys. And so that becomes a real challenge. And on the, on the city and government side, um, those legacy systems are prone to those attacks. And so we need, we really need to get uh, our systems, uh, you know, at least as good as theirs, if not better to managing those risks. So from a business risk perspective, it's really, um, you know, taking a stealing of, of the information, taking that reselling it in the dark web, and then um, taking down the system just because they can. So Christopher, based on what Brian mentioned, would you say, has there been any material change in the environment that you were living in, say, pre-pandemic and now? Is there anything which has fundamentally forced you to rethink and reimagine or re-engineer the way you would look at risk and how you'd manage it? Thank you. Yes, absolutely. And the, the reason that it is, is you used to be able to protect just within the borders of, say, the buildings that you or the, the, uh, the environments that you managed. And once this pandemic happened and everybody moves remote, now it's not just what do I protect internally here that I have control over that's behind my firewalls, behind my routers. Now I have to think about what is it that, that you know, XYZ user is doing at their remote location. So now I have to consider all of these other things. How do I make sure that I can push updates to these necessary computers to, to make sure that they're staying protected if I don't get visibility because they don't come on VPN for days or weeks and everybody's working remote? It is absolutely changed the landscape of how you manage all of the, the security side of things. And I, I don't think it's ever going back. Like it's never going to go back to the way that it was. We're always going to have remote workforce. And so now it, it requires us to think outside the box. We talk about cloud solutions. We talk about on-premise. Now we talk about people working remotely and needing to truly be able to protect all of what they're doing in their home environments, as well as what goes on in the, the day-to-day office. So Christopher, I agree with, that, I yeah, agree go ahead, Chris. Yeah. Well, I agree with Christopher on that. It's, it's your security footprint has uh, grown exponentially because of that. I think really it was kind of headed there anyways. The pandemic just uh, expedited that process to where we're more cloud and we have users all over the place and, and you're trying to protect that. So question for you, Christopher, the way you laid it out, that, that yes, it has changed the landscape. However, when you talk security, it's not a nice to have a thing that you're asking your remote users to do. It's a mandate even for them because their job is at stake because they have to maintain a certain posture. Does that work for you or is it better just said than done? Are you able to enforce realistically what you would say is an imperative for all of them? Or are you chasing people to embrace security as a way of life? I would say it's a blend. It's a mix because uh, you have individuals that are really up to speed, really. We're all used to using security. We, we multi-factor for our bank accounts, for our credit cards, for uh, school for all these different things, we we are used to advanced and, and enhanced security. The problem that you run into is a lot of times people feel in the business world or in the universities or in government, whatever you're at, people feel like these additional layers are making it so that I'm not as efficient as what I could be. So they 
have a bit of a pushback. However, it also depends on the leadership that you have from sort of the top down, pushing out that message that says, these things are really important because as soon as you are hacked or you do have some type of exposure, now you're in a real world of hurt and, and it changes everything that everybody does. So I think to, to succinctly answer what, you're, what you asked, it's a little bit of give and take. There are some people that are really on board and, and more than happy to abide by the new security policies. And then there are people that aren't. And I think in some instances, you just have to really sort of strong arm and, and you know, kind of like with your kids, you have to do things that just help them protect themselves because otherwise you will be fully exposed. So Brian, if the way we started, right? Maybe two years ago when we had the pandemic come and, and people suddenly were forced to go remote and people were not able to figure out what to do. So there was a surprise element. There was a surprise element for both the workers as well as the people who are trying to enforce security. But now a lot of water under the bridge, a lot of things being tried and tested and done. And now we're trying to come back and to some extent that hybrid is what we are calling it, no longer pure remote, right? Even that has taken shape and it's been a while since even the hybrid has been tested. Would you, would you say that there is a stable state which you can use as what we need to build towards or is it still hazy for the cities um for the cities it's it's um it's a it's changed it's dra dramatically changed the 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 culture within the city has been and still still kind of tries to drive there is well, that's the way we always did it. And it was, you know, um, cities were uh, legacy. There was still a lot of paper, not all cities, but I would say that that's a pretty good um, picture of how, how it was done here, as well as other cities that I talked to. I think that the driving to and changing this hybrid, I know when we went, when we went to remote work, we literally had to go down and teach people in our accounts payable in payroll this is how you use a VPN. This is how you can get out of the network. They had never used one before. And so you, there, there is a huge learning curve and, and, and getting those people to do that was, was a pretty big lift. Now that they've, they've had it, it, they've experienced it. There's a lot more of the desire. I would say you still like to Chris's early point, you have some people that are like, oh my gosh, I love this work from home and I want to do this the majority or at least part of the time. And then you still have some of those people now that we're returning to the, to the office and to city hall that you see are like, I, I still just want to be at city hall and come here, do my eight hours and, and leave. There's still some of that it's uh, in that culture. Um, but I think we're at the point where we can offer both and, and, and embrace it. Is the picture forward a little hazy? Yeah. Because I think you're starting to see some areas where you're like, well, it worked for the pandemic, but it really kind of didn't work the way it maybe should have. So we really probably need them in the office. Or are we needing to move the technology forward faster so that we can have that more hybrid? Um, for instance, today, um, it was discussed about can the city actually support remote workers wherever they are, not just in the state of Texas, but anywhere in the, in the continental U.S., and, it, and, and there's still a lot of gray area there. The attorneys looked at it and go, uh, we don't know. We, you know, we, we are advising against it, but we really don't have a great answer for you. 
So I think that it's still pretty hazy. And when you said that if a person is working remote, whether in Texas or North Carolina, how would it actually matter for attorneys to raise eyebrows, right? Well, that that comes more on the on the heels of uh, from the HR side than the technology. As technologists, I don't care if you work here in North Carolina or or Oregon or Alaska. That doesn't. If you're online, you're working, you're you're banging it out. That doesn't matter to me. I think it's more logistics on the HR side, on compensation, and and those things really aren't set up in city and government to handling that. You know, okay, well, where do we? put taxes and how does he, you know, what does payroll look like? And what about compensation? Because it was never, I think that's uh, actually is uh, a little bit of a hangup for cities. So Christopher, when you look at the kind of things you tried, you know, you, I'm sure you went through a joyride when we were in the middle of this pandemic, trying to sort things out. And then you experimented a few. What worked truly? In terms of, on one hand, you minimize risk, and at the same time, you build trust. I think for sure one of the things that worked is being able to uh, implement solutions that allowed for effective remote management of endpoints. So that that was a, a, a huge concern that we had, and we were able to implement some solutions that allowed us to do so in a really effective manner. Now, I did require the team to kind of uh, ramp up and uh, prepare themselves to be able to handle a different type of technology because you build things in the cloud and you build some things on-prem and you do some things like that and you integrate them and then effectively push them out to the end users. That worked really well. Some of the things that we determined didn't necessarily work were, say, uh, you know, individuals that had specific things that were running on, on a desktop, for instance, and we moved them to utilize uh, like a laptop, but they still wanted to be able to remote back into the older endpoint that they had that was still in-house somewhere, one of the offices. And we found that those things didn't necessarily work. And I guess if you had a lesson learned, it would be more of, hey, why don't we just take an image, put that up into a cloud-based solution that can offer that up to the end user to be able to connect to at any time uh, that those kind of things were were what we learned, I guess, if you will, um, that that were effective. And uh, I I think things that that we would uh, recommend that I would recommend to others would be to more look at uh, uh, from a perspective of I have these six seven things that I did over the last twelve to twenty four months, and of those things, these were the 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 two that worked really well, and these were the the five that didn't, and we want to change them a little bit from our side. Again, remote management became uh, a lot more seamless, but there still were some legacy mindsets that needed to be shifted. And, and if I can add on a little bit to that, to what Christopher is saying, for what we saw was we just, we, you know, you do incident response and you do this planning and planning, but we ran out of devices. Like we were, our backs were against the wall. We kind of had to do some, some makeshift BYOD. Um, we just weren't prepared because of the legacy of coming into city hall for so many years that we weren't really prepared to, everybody's gone. And, and you know, the only people left were the people that were supporting police cars, fire engines, uh, EMS trucks, stuff like that. That was the only people left on site. 
So to that end, when you had something which you tried, some things worked, what did not work. So for even the things that you somehow got them to work, if you had a choice again or had a chance again, I hope you don't get such a chance, which is going to bring us all down, right? I mean, we don't want another pandemic, but we cannot be assured that that would never happen. So if you had to go back and you had to get things moving under that much of duress, and you had to tackle it. What would you have changed at the people, process, and technology level so that you're better equipped to handle another disaster like that? Brian? Uh, for us, I think really preparedness to doing it from uh, not just the technology side, you know, instead of issuing so many desktops, issuing more laptops where they're, they're more mobile, but really educating people on, on what this means as far as a hybrid, how they, how the security even for them has changed. Um, we did some stuff with security tools to improve, uh, the, to allow them to get where they needed to be, but still have some visibility to what they're doing. To Chris's earlier point around endpoint management, we had to immediately do that. I think that um, those are the things we wish we had had in place. I know talking to a lot of other cities, one of the other things was preparedness to putting them on the VPN period. They, they experienced uh, just performance and outright outages when they had, you know, went from a couple hundred users to, you know, tens of thousands of users hitting a VPN to hit the network. Um, it just couldn't handle it. Making sure that your capacity is adequate to, to doing what you need to do in those kind of events. Now, when you are doing anything, uh, so this is for you, Christopher. If if you had to rethink even your, not people, but the way you run security for the city, what would you do differently with respect to the way you create the culture? With respect to the way you set expectations for the stakeholders? And also how you, you know, reward the people in your team so that you just have a better chance of dealing with it qualitatively in a, in a better quality manner. Well, I think, so that's, that's a lot right there. And it's I a think, loaded well, question, I know. <laughs> well, when you think about it, so from, from security, uh, whether you're in government, whether you're in higher ed, whether you're in uh, corporate, it, it, it doesn't really necessarily change unless you have, of course, different types of you know, HIPAA, PCI data, the different things that, that you have to abide by. Um, so I think one of the biggest things that you can do and, and that should be continued to be pushed is education. P people who understand are, are much more prepared to deal with a security issue or uh, a breach or an, an understanding of why you're rolling out a new technology to better protect and, and enhance. I mean, it's, it's the same thing that you do in life, really. You're always looking to enhance, or you should, because if you don't, you will fall by the wayside and maybe you get an injury or you gain weight or anything like that. So when you look at security and, and just looking at end users and, and leadership and, and all of that, it's, it's training people to understand and helping them understand 
why you're going where you're going and looking at what are the the risks to the org whether it's like i said a, a city or um, you know some other municipality uh, a higher education a university a school whatever the case may be understanding the risk it's like the old gi joe cartoon knowing is half the battle once you understand why you're trying to implement these different solutions people get on board and and they're willing and uh, able to, to more effectively roll out those solutions and absolve those risks and, and move them uh, from actually being risks to really more being, uh, you've got solutions in place and, and good preparedness. Let's take a quick break, listeners. We'll be right back. And Brian, when we come back, it would be good to compare, you know, because most of the security-related considerations, constraints, challenges and opportunities are spoken in the commercial sector. It'll be good for uh, the listeners to get an idea about what you're dealing with. And if someone were to take on a security role, security leadership role in a city or county government, how would that change the way they would, will they be able to bring the same playbook back or will they have to fundamentally rethink what they do? So let's take a quick break. We'll be right back. Please stay tuned. Today, enterprise technology is both strategic and global. Each week on CTN CIO Talk Network, IT thought leaders from around the world share their experience with listeners as they discuss with Sunjog All how they are trimming costs and partnering with business to innovate and help IT become more competitive, better care for customers, and improve the corporate bottom line. If you want to keep up with IT thought leadership, listen to CTN CIO Talk Network with Sunjog All at CIO Talk Network. You are listening to CTN, CIO Talk Network, with Sunjoe Gall. To learn more about our program, please visit CIOTalkNetwork.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back. So, Ryan's government, city and uh, county governments versus an enterprise in commercial sector, how the stakes are different or higher or lesser, and what should be the difference in the way a security leader should address them? Well, thank you for the question. So um, first, I'm going to kind of start it off with a story. Uh, when I first was uh, put in this role as CISO for a city, um, I went to a conference uh, sat down at a round table with some other CISOs and uh, security leaders. And um, this is when I first realized the difference. I'd came from, from private uh, sector and understood that. I think the big difference I realized is in the private, you have a lot of data that is never going to leave the organization or it's going to be very controlled when it leaves the organization. In government, you have these rules and regulations coming down from the feds called FOIA and open records from the state of Texas that you just realize that your set of data that you're releasing is grander than the set of data that you're probably protecting. And you have to determine 
where your controls are going to be placed, how you're going to con control the data, even for the data that is public, because you have to have transparency within government, um, it, it becomes a challenge to uh, determine, you know, this pile over here, we got to protect because it's HIPAA data, but this pile that's right next to it is completely, um, you know, obtainable by somebody opening an open records request to the city and we have to hand them over that data. And then there's kind of the gray in the middle, which we think it may be protected, but we have to go back to the attorney general and say, do we hold it or do we release it? And I think that is the biggest thing as far as in my experience in government. And then, you know, we could talk about the legacy applications and stuff like that. They tend to, to reside more in government, but I think really data management and that is a unique challenge in government. So Christopher, does a city and county government official need to develop security officials or security leader needs to develop a certain set of unique muscles compared to commercial? I would say maybe in, in some instances, yes, but for the most part, security is security. I mean, that, that's at least my take. Now, what I've found from uh, city and county government and, and uh, education and all of that is that it takes more time to make change. And there may be a little bit of uh, the political side of things that cause it to be a delay to lift and shift and, and make the, the necessary changes. But overall, we're all running, you know, whether you're commercial or whether you're the city of Dallas or uh, University of North Texas, we're all running servers with Windows and Linux. And we have endpoints and firewalls and routers and switches. And we have all the same exposures that are there. We have, you know, uh, a lot of IoT devices. There's a lot of, a lot of the same things across the board. I think more and if I could be really candid, it's more about the politics and, and getting things pushed through from that side than it is from needing to necessarily have a different security plan if you're in commercial versus if you're working in government. And I think it's to Dr. Gardner's point earlier, it's, it's uh, and, and some of the things that he and I have discussed, it's knowing how to navigate the, the, the waters to get what needs to be done, done and get people on board to help you implement those things and basically protect them <laughs> from themselves. And uh, I, I think that's the same, no matter where you are. I, I think, I, yeah, go ahead, Brian. To, I, I mirror exactly what Christopher is saying. I think from a strategy perspective, as a security practitioner, you determine what is the best strategy for the organization, whether that's private, public, doesn't matter. You, you head in that direction and you continually assess that and evaluate the risk and coming back in the best manner to address the risks. It, it, uh, you know, I did speak about data management, which is unique, but it's really picking the strategy, heading in that direction and, and keeping that path. Now, uh, Christopher, when you look at, I think you did mention about, you know, getting people to get educated about this. And in security, in my conversations with many security leaders across the world, they do value education, but that's something which is also, uh, it's, it doesn't have a hard ROI per se, or it cannot be measured in form of a hard ROI. You can put tools in place. You can try to build a culture of security, 
you can educate people in the way you mentioned but you're the one who's left holding the bag if there's a beach are there any specific tangible and measurable steps you can take which will at least get you a better control of the situation or we are almost like predicting weather i think if i could say uh, a key point that zig ziglar always said repetition is the mother of all learning so it's continually delivering that message and kind of uh, i'm not going to say beating people into submission but the more that people understand why we're doing what we're doing or why they need to follow these best practices if you will the better off the organization is going to be and so what i always like to think about is you train and you train and you train but you also protect yourself by having policy and procedure and acceptable risk is understood so if there are individual groups that uh, maybe don't abide by the policies the same way that they should you still want to make sure that you limit that exposure not only for yourself as a security professional but as a uh, an entity so that the school or the city or whatever the case may be can protect themselves as best possible there there really is no exact right answer and and right way because everything is always going to be a, a tiny bit different and you'll have a little bit of an exposure here or a little bit of an exposure there and you will always try to sort of uh, i guess protect yourself as best you can that is as individuals as in, as leadership as executives as a university as a a county a city whatever the case may be so all of that to say the reason that i personally believe in education so much is that the more you hear something the more you will it will sink in and it will become a part of you and it becomes more natural to do things and it helps you get separation from those individuals that may not think security is necessary they may not think that SSO is helpful or MFA is helpful or any other uh, security solution that you put in place the more they understand and and hear it repeatedly the more it sinks in and and kind of helps you build that camaraderie and uh, uh, another thing that i go back to is once everybody understands the risk then you have a joint uh, effort moving forward to mitigate that risk and once you have that you have a, a much clearer path to success so brian if you were to look at the way this is this whole security related effort that's been put in what would you say is the change in expectation or a change in the metric or the measures of how good the security should be how has that changed for you cuz did you get a new set of kpis kras because now the disruption has happened so i'm going to tell you um my my method has changed yes slightly but i think it's how in and this is to chris's point about education it's educating the people above you so they're digesting what security is really about what i mean we we use the word risk right and what does that mean to them is it is it when i tell them it's a high medium and low they're not going to understand what that is right oh that's a high risk okay well that's bad but what does bad really mean 
well, bad could mean a million dollar loss or $10 million. And when you start putting numbers around it, because that's the people, that's the people managing your budget, making sure you have money so that you can do those security things. And they start realizing there's real dollars associated with a high or a medium or a low. Then they start to grasp around what, what it is you're trying to do and why. And that is a key element that I found personally uh, um, here and other places I've been to making sure they understand what risk really means and then trying to uh, give them the ability and building that out as a whole enterprise risk management eventually, um, and for, especially for immature organizations, then they can make more informed decisions about budget, personnel, and basically your people process technologies, right? No, absolutely. Totally understand. So the thing which would help get clarity is because you're changing your approach to things, not fundamentally, but you're tweaking them, is your expectation from the stakeholders changing from you or from your department that you got to deliver would, me a different type or a level of security would, or risk mitigation? I would say no. And, and I only say that because I don't know if there ever was a you know, um, very good baseline given to them on what that meant. So I think we're really at least what I've noticed in where, where I've been is there hasn't been enough education to this point to say we're, I can communicate and we're maturing um, because we, they had never been educated to begin with. So um, now I can communicate, okay, here's where that, and give them those ROIs and saying, here's where we're maturing and why. Okay, we, we did this we got this to this maturity level and here's why we need to spend this dollar so we can start doing things like automating our artificial intelligence, machine learning, and start reducing the risk because now we're taking the human element out of it and we're actually improving our maturity while we're doing that. And we don't need as many people in the seats. We don't, we can, we move faster, right? So we're reducing the risk. And you can actually, there's studies out there that'll tell you if you start becoming more proactive, here's the ROI that you're going to see based on a, a numbers. And I think that's the approach that you have to take. Now, like I said, you got to go back to that baseline. There was never a good baseline to say, we're good or bad. It was just, well, we're doing security. Well, they don't know what that really means. And, and, and that's where you have to approach it and take it. So Christopher, if you had to create a plan for you saying, this is where we are with security and risk management, and this is where we get to, we have to get to, it cannot be one fuzzy to another fuzzy. How do you get specific about it? I think you have to, to understand, okay, so first off, here are the tools that we have today. Once you understand that, you know what your limitations are. You know what your exposures are. If you don't have, say, a third-party patch tool and you have no integrations, okay, well, that's an exposure because you have Adobe and Java and, uh, you know, KeePass and all these other applications that are running on endpoints. So that's, that's a, a simple solve, okay? We add in third-party patching. Uh, if we have no external scanning taking place, we run... Uh, you know, may, maybe a product and we scan our servers internally, but we're doing no penetration testing or exposure testing, then, okay, that's another exposure. And so what you do is you kind of inventory everything that you have. 
And these are the things that we're able to accomplish today. We have patch management for only our Windows devices. We have um, endpoint uh, antivirus. We have whatever the solution may be. So you list all of those out. And then you say, okay, based on things that are happening in the world, um, whatever the attacks are, we have these exposures. We have a backup solution that we run, but we have no immutable backups and we have no continuous data protection. Okay, well, ransomware really exposes something like that. Okay, well, what does it cost to implement a solution like that? Here's my budget. And I start to kind of line things out that way. The thing that people always try to do is you want to, we have 15 exposures. We're going to solve all 15 at once and we need $10 million. And then the finance side says, no, that, that's not even possible. You only have $2 million in budget. So you have to decide what are the priorities. And that's how you build the strategy out. You look at what is the most critical risk that needs to be solved in the quickest amount of time and what budget do I have to do that in? And then you basically build your plan out from there. So exposure to risk to budget builds out the plan that you can then begin to implement. And I always like to have 12, 24, 36, 48, 60 month plans. People say, oh no, you can't do you can't do five-year plans in IT. Absolutely you can, because there's certain things that are just never going to change. There are certain things that nobody has any forecast into, like a pandemic and things like that. But there are a lot of things that you can maybe have some moving targets, but that allows you to at least get that uh, that base shell of a strategy down. Let's take a quick break, listeners. We'll be right back. And Brian, when we come back, let's specifically dig into the people and process-related challenges or gaps that would hinder your effort in minimizing risk while building trust. And let's not stop at the just inventory level. Let's talk about specific things which you may have tried, which you, you may have seen that these are the gaps that you're finding. And what did you specifically do? to address those gaps and what worked and what did not. Again, a loaded question, but let's have a good chat about this. So listeners, please stay tuned. We'll be right back. Today, enterprise technology is both strategic and global. Each week on CTN CIO Talk Network, IT thought leaders from around the world share their experience with listeners as they discuss with Sunjog All how they are trimming costs and partnering with business to innovate and help IT become more competitive, better care for customers, and improve the corporate bottom line. If you want to keep up with IT thought leadership, listen to CTN CIO Talk Network with Sunjog All at CIO Talk Network. You are listening to CTN CIO Talk Network with Sunjo Gall. Now, back to the show. Welcome back. So, Brian, people and process issues. So of course, tech, while it is not the easiest, but it is still the easiest among the three people process technology, at least the way the world says it. So let's dig deeper to say, okay, people challenges and process challenges. What did you see, which are the chronic issues or things which always, almost always bother and bug us as security leaders? So, so this is a great question. And um, I think we, I alluded, we alluded to a little earlier in the conversation was, uh, you know, this is the way we've always done it. 
um, and that there wasn't a good baseline. And what I'm what I mean by that is, so for people per part is people weren't educated. They, they um, from the highest from the city manager, city mayor, all the way down to that person, um, you know, cleaning out the gutter, whatever they're doing for the city, it's an important job police officers, so on and so forth. I think getting them educated what cyber is, first off, so they understand it's going on. They they hear it, to Chris's earlier point, they're doing MFA to get in their bank, but they really kind of don't know why other than the bank's making them. And getting them to understand why this is so important that data is, is flying everywhere, including their own, um, and then starting to, to test them, you know, kind of like when you were going through school, right? The teacher would be up there at the chalkboard every day, teaching you, teaching you, teaching you, and now it's time for a test. And so what a good approach um, and uh, what we did and what I've done in other places is teach, 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 and now we're going to start testing you, start doing phishing testing, start seeing what those numbers are, taking an organization from 41% of your people click on phishing emails to 8%. I mean, those kind of things, now you have measurable metrics to where you're getting um, to showing that the city is becoming smarter, that education, that, that students are getting smarter about it, they're clicking less, they're not doing such silly things um, from the people perspective. From the process perspective, that is a hard one, especially when they're, they've done so many years. You know, you have somebody that's a veteran here at the city has done 20, 30 years, and they've always taken this piece of paper, filled it out this certain way and handed it over here. And now we're going to uplift and shift that to, to a technology where it's electronic that sometimes um, drives them wanting to go back to the paper until you really educate them and understanding, hey, not only is this going to make you more efficient, instead of doing 10 of these a day, you can do 100 of them a day or, or 12 of them even a day to, and also making it more secure. It's not just a stack of papers that's sitting there. It is all electronic, it's encrypted and getting them to understand that there are some places that you have to layer on security. And sometimes they complain about, you know, my job is becoming more difficult because I got a multi-factor to it. Yes, but um, if you, as a technologist, you start thinking about how can I make their job easier while I'm layering on security and making those processes like, offering SSO. Okay, yeah, we're going to make you do multi-factor, but in the end, we're really single sign-on in you. So instead of logging into 10 apps a day, you log in once, use multi-factor, you click on the app, you're in, you're in, you're in. You've actually improved their processes and the technology is what's supporting it. So Christopher, when you have handled the people and process issues, how do you prevent from recurring? Uh Explain that a little bit more. Means you would find some issues which keep resurfacing. And, and people are interesting animals, of course. And maybe process you can put to rest, but there could be some shifts. Or some people would stop adhering to that process, which again is people. So what do you do when you've got so much going on and you don't want to be bothered by solving the same problem again? But is there a way out? I would say sometimes there is and sometimes there isn't. For instance, going back to phishing, I had an instance where an individual in a fairly significant role multiple times clicked on a phishing email, cost the company hundreds of thousands of dollars just two, two times. And at that point, it gets to where you are like, okay, 
you either need to learn to change what you're doing or you should move on. And that is where, you know, sort of it steps outside of the IT realm and more into the HR and, and whoever this individual or that individual reports to and all of that. So if you have common offenders and you have issues that continue to arise, there are only so many process and procedures that you can implement to try. The only way that I can say it is I can't solve for stupid across the board. And so if individuals struggle with adopting technology and have trouble protecting themselves, I give this as an example all the time. If I implement a security system at my house, but I leave the front door open, that doesn't do any good to have a security system. If I implement all of these technology solutions and I put all these process and procedure in place, and I have somebody that is uh, bent on trying to figure out a way around it, I can't solve for that, not in every instance. And that's where you go and, and you build those relationships with the executive leadership team and trickle it down so that you can say, hey, in this instance, this person has done this two, three, four, five times. We either need to write them up and discipline them or let them go, coach up, coach out, whatever the case may be. Because again, no matter how uh, finite you become with your process and procedure, if people figure out ways to get around the technology, then that isn't going to be solved by further enhancing your policy and procedure, it, it has to kind of shift to more of a, an HR discussion and how do we get you on board to understand the criticality and the seriousness of, of this situation. So either you change the people or you change the people. That's what you're recommending. Yes. <laughs> okay. So Brian, to that end, how does that fly in the government scenario? Oh, that's, um, so <laughs> one of Chris's comments, we spend a, a lot of time trying to solve for stupid sometimes. Um, we want to make it as easy as possible, but there are times where it's it's got to be a hard no. It just has to be. It's not my favorite, but um, to getting there is uh, usually takes several iterations before I'm just like, it's a hard no. We, we take a similar approach. We have people that um, tend to, um, you know, be repeat offenders. And what we do is uh, try to train, train, train. And then we, then we start taking a harder line, you know, like, okay, um, we're taking you out of the system. We're disabling your account. You're going to sit through two hours of on-premise training. And, and hopefully that gets the message through. If it doesn't, then we would start to do, do is reduce their access level so that they can't do damage. It's not as easy as, well, we got to cut you loose. Sometimes that's not quite as an option in government, um, tends not to be, but um, it, has it happened? Yeah, it has, but it's, it's not as easy as it happens in private. So if you were to get the people to come on board, which is your leadership, and of course you will have to, who would take the responsibility of security? Are you able to not pass the buck, but could you make the stakeholders responsible for any risk that gets introduced after you've documented and after you've given them your two cents about, you know, what's at stake here and what are the vulnerabilities? Where does the buck so, stop? Because I hear more CISOs getting fired than the stakeholders. So, so first off, I think you have to build a culture where everybody understands that everybody is responsible for security within the city. It's not just the CISO. He's there to guide. 
he's really not there as the guy that's going to be the fall guy. Um, if you're going into that environment, I would tell you to run. Um, it has to be where at the upper upper levels, the city, you know, um, in the city of city manager, city mayor, that they're communicating that everybody within the city is responsible to security. And that even can be communicated to residents to saying, hey, when you're going in to pay your water bill, as we add these features and this security, this is to protect your information, not just the employees, but the residents' information. So I think you have to go there. And then when it comes to risk, you have to understand when you're communicating with department directors and and, uh, managers where their risk accountability starts and it stops because you'll see the, the lowest level analysts tell you to go do something and they need to understand they don't own that risk. They cannot make that decision. Some decisions are made at the director level for the department. Some decisions are the city manager's risk. Some are the residents as the owners of the city, right? So you need to understand and communicate where their risk starts and stops because um, otherwise you'll, you'll mix that up and you'll be going to do something that could impact risk to the entire city, not just to a department or to a user. And I think that's the communication that has to ha- come, come into play and communicating where those risks are and how and who owns them. Now, one final question, which I'd love for both of you to take a stab at perhaps, regarding the leadership mindset and the style. Do you think security leaders have to adjust their style or they have to adopt a new style for them to be effective in you know, minimizing risk and building trust in the today's and the tomorrow's rather faster and a more uncertain future? Starting with you, uh, Brian. So the answer to that is yes, but I would expand it to the organization, the culture within the organization. If you have an organization that is ready, willing, wanting to be secure, your your lift and shift or making that organization mature is going to be less and it's going to go faster for you as a security practitioner. For organizations that, well, this is the way we've always done it. This is the way I want to do it tomorrow. That becomes walk, you know, walking up a hill with a boulder you're pushing and somebody pulling back on you. And, and you can get there and you, you keep moving there as long as upper leadership has, has assured you they, they are go- there to help you. Um, you're going to get there. It's just going to be a lot harder. Christopher? Sure. I would add, so when you think about leadership and leadership styles and how you get things done and all of that, it really boils down to this. Leadership is about influence. It's getting others to do what you want them to do because they want to do it. And so that happens no matter what you're talking about, whether you're talking about security, whether you're talking about infrastructure, whether you're talking about, it, it, it doesn't matter. It doesn't even have to be, it, it's across all industries, all, all uh, environments, whatever the case may be. So I think what you have to do is adopt a style that allows you to be adaptable so that you can, to Dr. Gardner's point, be able to implement successfully the things that you know need to be implemented. So you may tweak a little bit here and there. What I always call it is like the, the individual behind the curtain, pulling the, pulling the, the levers and, and turning the knobs 
until you get that right sequence and you get some things moving along. And you'll run into individuals that are uh, really chomping at the bit to help you be successful. And you'll run into individuals that could care less if you're successful in what your endeavor is. And in the security world, you just have to be able to push those things over the goal line to, to make sure that you are, are uh, minimizing uh, the risk and uh, I guess implementing the right solutions to solve those problems while getting everybody on board and kind of getting them behind you and, and, and moving forward. Thank you so much once again, Brian and Christopher, for sharing your insights about how the city and county governments can rethink the way they are looking at people, process, and technologies, and the security leaders take a step back, look at what's ahead, and start building such an environment. And in, in both of your words, the culture, the right culture, so that we minimize risk while building trust. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. And listeners, please connect with us on social media and subscribe to our podcast. Once again, thank you for listening to CTN. This is your host, Sanjog All, signing off. Till next week, take care and God bless. Thank you for tuning in to CTN, CIO Talk Network, with your host, Sunjo Gall. To learn more about our program or for show archives, comments, or questions, please visit CIOTalkNetwork.com. Thank you again for listening.